Um, welcome everybody. This is Faded Mates. I'm Sarah McLean. I'm Jen Prokop, and we have a special guest with us today, Kate Claiborne. Hi everyone. I'm Kate Claiborne. I write contemporary romance and I'm obsessed with this podcast. I'm very excited to be on it because Sarah got me reading Presley Cole. The text message thread between me and Kate over her IAD reread, or not reread, first time read, is pretty delightful, you guys. It's really special. I'm shocked by a lot of things, and Sarah likes to have those text message records of my shock. Like when he gnaws off his leg. Yeah, that was a... That was a big one. Um, <laughs> well, and that's the very beginning. You kept you soldiered through. Yeah, I I had to. I've had to text Sarah for some points of clarification about <laughs> events happening in the books, and she always knows. So it's been well, a special I also, experience. I also made Kate read the uh, Game Maker series first. Did you read it first? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> She's like, she texts me. She's like, are there orgies in this book? And I was like, no. <laughs> Come on. No. There is a chastity belt, but orgies? No. There, more than once, Sarah has told me that there is no orgies or group sex in a book. And then there is. More than one. <laughs> well, I just block it out, I guess. <laughs> it's always a surprise. Is what... <laughs> it's like a little Easter egg. Right. <laughs> It is. I just, I just like you. To, I, I don't want to spoil anything. Is what it is. <laughs> yes, it has nothing to do with me. You want to keep those texts were... going. <laughs> I hope you're taking screenshots of the texts. My texts all disappear after 30 days, and if I re- there's something really good that goes down, I have to remember to like, kind of keep a keep keep a record. a record of the really funny ones. Yeah, yeah. it's important. <laughs> well, um, Kate's going to join us later in the podcast for a read along because I want her to I want the whole world to experience what it is to, <laughs> to have Kate read a, read a book that you recommended to her <laughs> that is bonkers. Um, but we asked her to come on for an interstitial episode because I think she's so brilliant about romance novels. And she's a new book out. Congratulations, Kate. Thank you so Best much. of Luck, which is the third book in the Chance of a Lifetime series. Um, I adore this series. I um, have shouted about it to the rooftops. I put the second book in the series, Luck of the Draw, on my Washington Post Best Books of the Year um, list. I'm just wild about this series. The concept is so smart. Um, it's and I can't believe I can't believe no one's ever done it before. It feel now I'm sort of like, of course, this is a great idea. Um, but it's three best friends who win the lottery. And they don't win a billion dollars. Um, they win enough money to change their lives, um, but in small, like, cool ways. And um, so they do that um, in different ways, get new jobs or, um, you know, renovate their houses. <laughs> and uh, this most recent one, um, it, Greer, who is the third of this is the last book in the series, um, she has never had a chance to go back to school. And so she is getting her degree. So uh, Greer decides she's going to go back to school. She gets herself into a little bit of a bind and needs um, a photographer to get her out of it, sort of. Um, and luckily, there is one just hanging around. <laughs> there is one happens to be in town. <laughs> um, and that photographer is her best friend's older brother. And 
this is the trope we're going to talk about this week on interstitial. Interstitial number three. Um, so, Kate, let's talk. So tell us a little about the series, about how you came up with it. Um, and then I want to really dig into this um, best friend's older brother, um, best friend's little sister. Uh, All trope. variations. The sort of sibling, the the because it really does sca- scratch an itch. Well, and I, before you start, I want to point out that I sent it. Speaking of text messages, I sent one to Sarah earlier this week. It was like, wait, are we doing best friend sibling or sibling's best friend? And she was like, they're the same. <laughs> it just depends on which character you're talking about. And I was like, fine, fine. <laughs> I had I had similar questions. Um, yeah, I love this uh, in books. And so um, when I, I always knew that the, this third book in the series would end this way um, with these two characters. So, the, the, so Greer meets um, Alex in the first book of the series um, at, over at Kit's house. And there's instant kind of chemistry between them, but they reconnect a couple of years later at Kit's wedding. And that's when uh, this particular book takes place. Can I just add, as an aside, uh, authors out there, I would suggest that you not title the final book in your series anything that has the phrase best of in it. (laughs) It's a lot of pressure, is what I would say. (laughs) Like, what are you going to title it, though? A mediocre amount of love. (laughs) Yes. I mean, (laughs) it works. The title works very well, but it just was a lot of pressure. Anyway, I uh, so the, the concept for the series about three friends winning the lottery just came from, I really hope that when I say this, it's not going to be just me, but don't you guys have conversations sometimes with your friends about what you would do if you won the lottery? Oh my God, all the time. Yeah. Um, I mean, scheduled them in onto my Google Calendar. Right. There was just a billion dollar jackpot. I know. And I don't play the lottery, but I sure played the lottery then. Yeah, that time. And you had an amazing thread, actually, Sarah, where you asked people what they would do with it. And I loved reading that. It thread. was delightful. You guys, you can all come over and swim at my own personal pool. It's fine. <laughs> Yeah, it was really what and the best thing about it is just seeing, first of all, I think like the playing the lottery clearly is about like, the dreaming part. Yes, the odds of you winning are so minuscule, right? But that thread and we'll link to it in show notes is, um, is what's really wonderful about it is like so many people, their idea was like, really philanthropic and giving to the world. And um, and I think that's so wonderful. It made me feel good about the people who follow me on Twitter. Um, and then it also made me feel really bad about real billionaires. <laughs> yes. Isn't that true? <laughs> 2018, the year billionaires died. <laughs> um, well, I think that the idea of winning money or any kind of change like that in your life that allows you to make some fundamental difference in your circumstance is revealing about character. And that's why I wanted to write about it. I'm going to just talk about one of your books, that, the other book that I love, your, or I love all your books, but um, the book that I put on the list, which was um, Luck of the Draw. I really think when, when that heroine um, wins the lottery and decides to quit her job, she's still sort of haunted by her past, by the things that she, you know, she was and that she did. Um, and 
And so it is very telling that like the first thing that she does is decide she's going to make a list of all the people that she has wronged and sort of try and fix herself by fixing those relationships and those interactions, which is both um, sort of amazing and also kind of narcissistic, right? Right. She realizes that. And you don't you don't hesitate in showing her that. Well, heroes, the hero doesn't hesitate in yes. showing her that. <laughs> um, I, yeah, I think it, it's an opportunity to show something about who your characters are, but it also is revealing about how the things that we want, uh, when we think about what we would do if we had money or different circumstances, uh, they reveal things that don't really have anything to do with money, the, the things that we right. want. So there's, you know, something beneath all that. So I loved the concept and I loved writing each of the stories. Well, I loved when they were done being written is a more <laughs> accurate way of putting that. Um, and the last one in the series was very special to me for a lot of reasons um, because Greer is the character who most clearly knows what to do with her money. Uh, she has a very set plan in mind, but the things that she really wants for herself are much more difficult to achieve. And so I, I loved writing a story for that reason. So can I, I'm going to say something that's kind of off topic, but, um, in December, there's this thing, the great big romance read, and all of the like romance book clubs in the country are reading the same book, and it's Pride by, um, her name's Ibby Zaboy, and she, I saw her speak at my local bookstore at 57th Street Books, and she said something really interesting, and, and, and it, it links back to, I think, this character, because what she said is, um, it's like a Pride and Prejudice retelling, and she talks about how... Um, in Pride and Prejudice, it's about like inheritance and money, like sort of what is, but in this, like our modern world, so much of kind of like, it's about education, right? And so the idea that the thing that you would crave that you think could change your life would be an education. And, and I just, it really struck me as being like a really interesting commentary on kind of our modern world. Like, how do you like take money and and do something with it to change your life. And often it's, I'm going to go back to school. So I think that's like a really interesting way too, to think about like, you know, how do you turn money into something, something else, right? Like you can go back to school and do something with it. And it sounds like this is what this character does, right? Yes. Yeah. I think, and the idea I think is that she feels that going back to school and and she knows what she wants to do when she get, goes back to school. She's very focused, but she has this idea that this will sort of feed her forever and make and allow her to be independent forever, which is really important to her. And I think a lot of people feel that way about education. Um, they see it as a a pathway to security. I think it's like a really fundamental part of the American dream, but I also think it's something people now question when folks roll out of school with $100,000 worth of debt. Yes. <laughs> right. Yeah, and for sure. our, our son is 15 and, you know, college is looming. And, you know, my husband looked at me one day and he's like, we just have to help him. Like we can't put him in the position where he's 18 years old and we let him like buy a house essentially, but there's no house. For sure. Yeah. <laughs> and that's something I think. Um, so it's interesting that like lottery money would be used to pay for it too, because it means that, like it's the promise of education without future debt. Yeah. 
Yeah, absolutely. So Greer uh, gets herself to almost to the end. And then she needs one credit, one art credit. Yes. Um, and uh, she is real upset. <laughs> real <laughs> to upset. discover that she's one credit away from this um, this dream. And um, she's running out of money because uh, in t- very smartly, uh, you didn't give them enough money to just live however they wanted forever. Right. Um, so uh, she needs help. She needs the help of um, an artist to help her essentially um, do a quick and dirty, like, <laughs> sorry. <laughs> I mean, a lot of quick and dirty stuff, frankly. <laughs> so I'm sorry. Don't it's be fine. sorry. I brought us there. It's fine. <laughs> this is an explicit podcast. So. <laughs> Um, to do... There's no group sex in the book. <laughs> not that there's anything I mean, wrong with it, but it's I'm, not in this book. I thought you were talking about like the three of us, and I was like, yeah, because we're all in different rooms, Kate. Come on. <laughs> <laughs> um, it's not the first time someone has said there's no group sex, and then group sex has just appeared. <laughs> so you know, That's try true. your luck. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, anyway, so she needs an art. She needs basically like a um, what are they called in college when you do like a special study? That's what it's called, right? Yeah, sort of an independent study. Yeah, a quick and dirty independent study on art. And her best friend's older brother, who is a war photographer, who yes. tra- or he's a war photographer. He's a photojournalist. He yeah, yeah, National Geographic and other places too. Um, he's home for a wedding and also clearly needs to be benched for a little while. He's suffering from um, panic attacks and is it PTSD? Is that what we would say? What would we say? Um, no, I think that he has probably a generalized anxiety that he's been carrying with him for a long time and has sort of refused to acknowledge. But certainly I think his job has added to that. And he is clearly cannot be shipped around the world anymore. Like he needs to have some rest and 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 just recenter himself. Um, and what better way to do that than to fall in love with your little sister's best friend? Right. <laughs> so let's talk about this because that's why we're here to talk about these sort of sibling relationship romances. Um, and I am really delighted by them. They scratch a real itch for me. I think it's partially because I had an older brother who like was so significantly older that his friends all seemed like gods to me. Like he was eight years older than me and like the every boy who walked in the house was somehow dreamy to me because I was hitting puberty as he was in college and they just all looked you know, like actual human males. <laughs> and so maybe like it's it's maybe hardwired for me. Um, but what is it? What is it about these books? What's this trope doing for us? So I think, well, Sarah knows a bit that I think there's a lot going on with this trope. Um, but one thing that I think is one reason I like to read this trope and one reason I enjoyed writing it is because I do like reading a lot about family dynamics and how your family dynamics shape you as a person. Combining that, I think, with a love story is interesting. And there's a lot of opportunities within this trope to explore the different kinds of relationships one might have with their siblings. So I think sibling relationships can be really formative. So I have an older brother. That relationship is very important to me and sort of shaped me as a person. Um, And in the case of Alex and Greer's story, Alex 
really was apparent to his younger sister and so, sort of struggled to separate himself from her when she was finally old enough to be on her own uh, because he had felt such an obligation to her. And so part of his fear about getting involved with his little sister's best friend is that it will in some way sort of chain him to the kind of situation he worked so hard to get out of uh, when he was younger. So that, like, that's an interesting dynamic, but there are tons of other dynamics that make it weird or strange to get involved with, you know, the best friend of your sibling. Well, so Kate, we were vaguely talking about this yesterday and I said, stop talking. I want to do it on the podcast. (laughs) Because I really think that there's, there's an interesting interplay here. And you were very clear about articulating the difference between dating your sister's best friend versus dating your brother's best friend. Yes, I wanted to uh, tell me more. And I think that's so interesting. Yeah, so I think often when the trope is you are the the heroine is uh, in love with her older brother's best friend or pursuing her older brother's best friend or there's attraction between her and her older brother's best friend. The That trope often relies on, not always, but I think often relies on some patriarchal values about sort of possession or ownership, right? So part of the conflict is like, uh, when my older brother finds out about this, he's going to go berserk. Right. It'll be a betrayal of our friendship yes. as men. Right. Um, or like between the between the two friends, maybe the maybe the older brother knows this friend is like kind of a dog, right? He thinks of him as like, yeah, like they have to they have to examine the the way they've treated women. Yes, right. Like you're not good enough for my sister, even though you've been good enough to be my friend. Um, so I think that's that can be really interesting. We see this pop up a lot in historicals. Like this is a really classic historical structure. Well, and just it seems with rake. Yeah, right. Well, and it also seems just in general, it seems like okay, if I was going to make a fake, I'm going to make up a fake statistic. It seems like there's five times the number of like my like the best friend's brother than there is like it's a sister. Right. And if it's a sister, it's always a younger sister. If it's right, like there's all these ways in which it really plays into like patriarchal thinking, but also like the sexism of like younger women with older men, like a lot of things just it really seems very id in that way. We use that word a lot on this Mm -hmm. podcast. I think it is it. I think it's really it's it sort of edges into taboo. It's almost like. A few years ago, there was that step the boom and like stepbrother romances. It's a it's a little I don't it's like a step back from that. It's not quite as edgy. Exactly. Like the relationship is still as close. Oftentimes you've grown up with them, you know them. Um you have a deep relationship with them in some way. Like you've you've spent time with them. They've, you know, in in historical and I confess I mean, my first 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 book, which is a YA historical, I wrote this scene and it's such a like cliche, but like you were up in a tree and he was the one who helped you down, right? Like it's sort of imprinted on you that this is this boy is the is the primordial boy to use um immortals after dark (laughs) (laughs) language um so there's all that but i would say and i said this to kate yesterday 
for me, it almost feels like um, dating your best friend's brother. So if there are two girls in this scenario and then the brother is more taboo because it feels like female friendship is more powerful or should be more powerful in the romance. So the fear that that getting involved with your best friend's brother could damage the friendship. Right. Female friendship is sacred. Yeah, I think that's I think that's interesting. Well, that's because that's the biggest risk too, right? Like by dating, I mean, so you're really upping the stakes as well. By dating your best friend's sibling, you're also potentially putting that friendship in a, a future really precarious position if it doesn't work out. Mm-hmm. My question to you, Kate, is were you trying to subvert this trope when you wrote this book? Or were you, I mean, like when, when you think about then approaching a trope that you have such a history and like kind of like this you know, an, almost an analytical way that you're looking at it. What are you trying to achieve as an author when you then write that into a book of your own? So I will tell you, I did think a little bit about the dynamic of best friend sibling um, and how I could write it in a way that felt to me like everybody in the book was treated like a consenting adult. Um so I guess what I mean by that is I, I didn't want a situation where um, the, the two best friends somehow fractured because they, you know, because the best friend finds out, oh, my best friend has been dating my brother. I didn't want a situation like that in the book. That was important to me. So I did think a lot about it when I was writing. And I remember at one point I had emailed my agent and... <laughs> I said, would this make you mad if this was your (laughs) best friend? And we sort of (laughs) talked through it. Um, So it was important to me that throughout the book, the two best friends know that the friendship is a priority and nothing will change about that friendship. And I I think what was helpful there is that this is the final book in the series. And Mm -hmm. so you've, you've seen, you've seen the way they, these three women are as friends together. And I think that's quite believable for them as three friends that they are much like family themselves well and she's delighted that there's i mean she sees that her brother her brother has been so um alec has been so distant and so um he's never around he's you know always traveling the world but also like emotionally he's never around right and so the idea that he might be grounded here in this town with my friends in my circle is really delightful to his sister. Yeah. And I think that was the tension I thought was interesting. You know, the often in these books, what it is, is sort of a shock and and sometimes even disgust when you find out that your sibling and your best friend are involved or something. Mm -hmm. And I sort of wanted to play with that and what it would feel like to have the sibling be so invested in the relationship that that might also be a, a stressor on it. Oh, interesting. Um, so, which is real because she does stress him. Like she's, I'm, I'm sorry. For some reason, I'm drawing a blank on her name. What's the sister's name? Kit. Kit. Oh, right. So Kit is a stressful influence. I mean, she doesn't mean to be, but she's a little intense, and and she she adores him. She sort of their their relationship is sort of. It has to evolve, too, into a, a realistic yes. relationship because she's got this fantasy of what her older brother should be. Yeah. Or- well, I think that the whole part, and I haven't read this. It's not out yet, like when we're talking. But the whole point about 
like emote bringing like the the brother right like the best if the two best friends are females like bringing the brother back into the fold Mm -hmm. not just like physically but emotionally yeah that's like if that's I think another thing that really speaks to us like there's this distance between maybe sisters and brothers and so to sort of like capture the brother's best friend means that you're I don't know like building an emotional relationship with your sibling too that might be harder for people to I mean I have two brothers I love them both but um we weren't close as teenagers we're much closer now that we're you know in our 40s mm-hmm. so it's really interesting that um you know but like kind of wanting an emotional like connection with your family that this other person might help you bridge too like that's really interesting to me yeah and I do think how we feel toward older brothers and Sarah said a bit about this too you know, I think when you're a younger sister, you're, I mean, I really looked up to my older brother my whole life. I mean, I still look up to my older brother. Um, and, you know, he was older enough that when he had his friends around, I was sort of like, I wanted to hang out with them. Um, and so I just think those relationships shape us so much. And so I was interested in writing not just about this love story, but also about this family story in a certain way. I think it's always cool when somebody takes a trope that we all have read a thousand times and expected to go one way and twists it around and makes it something else. And it makes me think of um, the book that actually I wanted to talk about this week. So I'm going to talk about it. Can't wait. Um, um, so I chose Sierra Simone's Sinner this week, um, which I'm pretty sure does not have an orgy in it, though it's, it could be her first book that doesn't Surprise! have an orgy in it. <laughs> um, but, but I don't rem- – at least I don't remember one, but we know that my memory in this is apparently not useful. <laughs> so um, this is book two – it's sort of book one and a half in the priest series. Um, Those of you who've heard me talk about um, Priest know that I just think, I think Sierra is one of the best erotic writers um, writing today. I also think this particular series is one of the best um, inspirational series I've ever read, which seems like it would run counter to the fact that it is erotica. Um, But the, the hero of the first book, Priest, is a priest. And this book, Sinner, um, features his brother, who is in no way religious. I mean, in no, like he is, he is absolutely the sinner, the eponymous sinner of the title. Um, and he is at a, it begins at a very fancy um, uh, party, um, a fundraising party for a, you know, posh nonprofit in, in New York City. And he sees a woman standing in the, in the darkness and he goes to her and he's like, immediately drawn to her and she's the most beautiful thing he's ever seen and um, it turns out that she is the little sister of his best friend um, who he has not seen since she was a child like they they have not seen each other in a decade does he recognize her or no he does not recognize her initially um, and then he does and it turns out that she is um, about to become a nun she has not taken vows oh my um, god <laughs> I don't know. I'm like, okay. <laughs> I, I have notes. I have notes out. And I just wrote to myself, about to be a nun. <laughs> Um, she is. She's. She is. Um, she is taking, planning to take the vows in a particular sect of um, 
the Catholic Church. Um, and this particular sect has basically the the head um, the head sisters concept. The sort of um, is is before you take this vow, you have to go off and like spend a month basically like figuring out if this is what you want. And so again, this is this is not for everybody. This book, it's um, it is erotic, and it is you know if you are su- if if blasphemy is a problem for you, <laughs> like this might be problematic. However, um, Zandi, the hero, the heroine is so faith. Her faith is so grounded. Basically, what she says to him is, "Test me." Like. This is I believe that I'm ready for this. Like it's your job to like if you if you want this relationship with me, like I'll I'll for a for a month. Um, if you think I'm crazy, test my faith. And so he does. Um, and for a month they have this very intense relationship that is cloistered from the rest of their families by virtue of the fact that she is about to become. So wait, let's be clear. The tests are like, they're sex tests. They're sex tests. I mean, there are all sorts of tests, but it's basically, I mean, like essentially what he says is you're so young, you have a whole life ahead of you. This is a bonkers decision, right? It's 2018. This is, this is a crazy decision. And she says, I'm sure this is what I want. You know, I'm sure of my faith. It's bedrock. And I want you to, and like you know, yes, okay, let's, this is your chance. This is our, my chance to test myself. So love wins out over God at the end though, right, Sarah? (laughs) (laughs) Well, interestingly, this is why I say that it's an inspirational. So Priest, I always felt like was one of the most, one of the best inspirations. So the concept of the inspirational romance is, um, you know, it's, it's basically a love story between three people, right? Like the, the two characters and God, um, God has to be a part of the relationship. If you remove God from the equation, the book falls apart. That is true of both of those books. And there is a moment in Priest where the hero says, "They're, you know, he and the heroine are, are together, and he thinks to himself, this is the closest to God I've ever felt. And so what Sierra does so well in these books, and she's clearly she's clearly very aware of Catholic faith, Catholic dogma, the texts of the of the Catholic Church. I mean, this is not a person who has sort of like thrown a collar on a guy and sent those sent her sent him into battle, right? Like she knows her texts. And what she does is she sort of she weaves in this idea of like what does faith mean? How is faith a part of our lives wh- whether or not we're nuns, priests, etc. Like, do we have to take that vow in order to make a vow to God? It is intense and beautiful. And it's, I mean, I, I won't tell you what happens at the end, but it is a romance novel. So there is a happily ever after. Um, but more importantly, there's this very real sense. So Sean, um, her family ends up discovering it. Her brother has secrets too. Um, and the relationship is incredibly intense for so many reasons the other thing i think sierra does so well like she layers um emotional conflict just there's no such thing as too too much emotional conflict for her and i i think it's really beautiful i will also say i read this book um right after my father died and um Sean, the the hero's mother, is dying of cancer in it. Um, So I want to trigger. I want to just put a warning on that for people who might be triggered by that experience. She she dies over the course of the book, and it is probably one of the most honest 
depictions of the experience of losing your parent in the moment that I've ever read. And so it was one of those things where I really truly believe that sometimes a book just finds you in a moment. When you need it. And this book found me. And so this is, but anyway, I've now blathered on about this book, but I think it's so beautiful. And I do think like he has a sort of glimmer of the guilt of you're my best friend's little sister, but that's not the guilt that really, that doesn't bother him to the same level as so much other stuff. Right. <laughs> like, you're also about to become a nun. Wow. I'm glad I wrote that down, actually, because, I mean, that's exactly what I love about a romance novel is when the conflict that you tell me about in the beginning, help, like, the, the main thing I think is, well, they're not going to be able to overcome that. And about <laughs> to be a nun is one of the things, I would think. So, yeah, I'm excited. Yeah. Um, it's it's pretty bonkers. Um, and, Sarah, and I the, would expect nothing less from you. Thank you. You're welcome. This is a Faded Mates with Sarah McLean. Let's talk about bonkers books. You have to be on brand all the time. Yeah. All the time. I think it's fine. Yeah, it's true. Kate, what book do you want to talk about today that has this trope other than your own book? So I picked a book that is, it's one of the first historicals I ever read. Um, and also probably one of the first romances I ever read within the first maybe dozen romances I ever oh, wow. read. Um, and so you, you guys probably have books like that, that sort of, you love them and they have imprinted on you in some Absolutely. way. Um, yeah. and so this book is Tessa Dare's Goddess of the Hunt, which is wonderful from start to finish. Um, and when I was thinking about what I would say about this book, I thought about there's a line from the very beginning of the book where the hero, Jeremy, is thinking about the heroine who has um, just sort of intruded uh, into his room late at night. And he refers to her as his personal version of a biblical plague. <laughs> um, and Jeremy is... Uh, the kind of hero that I often am really drawn to. So he's extremely sort of severe and duty driven. He's completely emotionally constipated. Oh, I love that. Um, and he really had, he's known Lucy for years because he is uh, her brother, his, her older brother is his oldest friend, but he sort of actively avoided her because she is really everything he is not. She is expressive and high-spirited. She is a risk-taker. Um, she has had a terrible and long-lasting crush on one of her older brother's other friends. Um, oh, interesting. Ooh, a love triangle. Yes. And, and the other friend, this guy Toby, is like very dashing and very charming and always knows the right thing to say. So a real contrast to Jeremy, the, the hero. Um, and I think that one thing, the book is great. The banter between them is great because they are, you know, characters that are unmatched in this way often communicate in very funny ways. And that is absolutely the case in this book. I think Tessa Dare writes really great banter overall. She's so good. So it's good. amazing. And one thing I think that is interesting about this book is that Lucy, um, her she is her parents died when she was quite young, and so her brother has been a guardian to her, but sort of a negligent guardian. He has not paid a lot of attention to her, um, and I think you get the sense that a lot of her behavior 
has been designed to try and get his attention in some ways. Um, and Jeremy, I think one of the conflicts, the internal conflicts he feels is that he's very drawn to her and wants to protect her and give her a lot of the attention that she has lacked uh, in her life. But at the same time, he's quite terrified of all the emotion that she brings with her and that she brings about in him. And it's a wonderful book. It's a wonderful example of the trope. And it's also, um, there is a bit, there is a bit as the book goes on, um, the older brother finally kind of notices her and is appalled that this has happened with his friend. Um, but it all feels quite shallow. Um, and that's interesting as well. Her relationship with Jeremy also reveals kind of a wound she carries from her family dynamic. And again, that's what I love about stories like these. And so mine, which I think like really like hopscotches right into that exact same idea, which is it's Clean Breaks by Ruby Lang. And I love it too. And I think it really is about, and and in this book, um, the the heroine's name is um, Sarah Soon, and she's a like an OBGYN in Portland. She actually has just um, kind of recovered from a from cancer, and this is something she has really kept from her family because um, in her teenage years there was like a, a like a break. Like she got caught at a party making out with someone in her family. They don't. They don't like actively disown her, but they shame her. And she's like, forget it. I, you know, I don't trust you people. I'm out of here. And so this is like many years later and she meets up with her brother's friend, Jake Lee, and they, um, they kind of embark on this affair, but it's very much about how betrayed she feels by her family and the way in which she sort of extends those feelings onto Jake, who she feels like maybe could have done better by her. (laughs) They were friends too. And I think the thing I really like about this book, I mean, there's so much to like about this book, but um, the way that both Jake and Sarah um, learn to draw boundaries for themselves with their families and in Jake's case, his ex, I think it's just like a really amazing model for like when you're dating your best friend's sibling, right? Like when there's like someone like that from your family, it's not just about dating them. It's about kind of drawing those boundaries for yourself about like what you're willing to put up with from people. And um, often childhood, you know, like my friend Liz says like, of course your family knows how to push your buttons. They installed them. Yes. That's great. <laughs> right? <laughs> Isn't that amazing? That's a great yeah. way of putting it. It is. As we head into the holidays. Yeah. <laughs> and and I think that that's what like, and so dating Jake, like all those buttons that she has so carefully sort of like not allowed anyone to press start getting punched again. And I think there's some really amazing scenes where, um, and, and in fact, uh, one of them actually is Jake is, is recently divorced and his ex-wife shows up at his house and he refuses to let her in. He's like, we can talk on the back porch. And it's this moment where you see like the way something he's learned from her is like, I don't have to, I get to say what's going to work for me and to see these two then together, like move forward. I, it's one of the best books I've ever read about like family dynamics when your family is 
kind of a pain in the ass. Ruby is brilliant at complicated dynamics, even mm -hmm. between friends, like really close friends that have very complicated dynamics among them. Her, she's brilliant. And I love her. I love the whole series because I feel like um, it's very rare that you see uh, female doctors in romance. Yes. Oh, yeah. Um, and I'm and Ruby, does, they're all almost all of them. Are, yes. <laughs> um, are our female doctors, which is not about uh, siblings, but I just like it. Yes. Maybe we could have Ruby on. Yes, you yeah. should. We should. Um, this is amazing, and I'm so happy that we got to talk about it. Um, you guys are amazing. This podcast is <laughs> Kate, amazing. Kate, come back and talk about um, an, another book with us. I'm going to be ready to talk about something completely bonkers with you guys. <laughs> I want you to take good notes. <laughs> Don't and worry. I'll, I'll screenshot our text. All the oh my gods. No. Yes, that can be in show notes, sort of highlights. Highlights from our texts. <laughs> um, so this is amazing. Everyone, you're listening to Faded Mates. We have Kate Claiborne this week. Um, go get her book, Best of Luck. It's the last in the uh, Chance of a Lifetime series. It came out last week. And um, stick with us for our Immortals After Dark read-along, which will continue next week. Thanks for being with us. Thanks.